Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. The fact that I'm working in this business in the way in which I'm working and that I have some choice about what I do, that I get to pick and choose, that I make money, I don't have a lot of regrets. There wasn't a lot of bitterness about that stuff beforehand because I, I wouldn't have chosen a different profession. I like the profession. I like the experiences I've had in it. I like uh, the people I've met, the travel, all that stuff. And you talk about that marriage of like bad things in my life happening that seem to almost kind of twin with good things. I've almost been a little superstitious about that with some of the good things that have happened in the last few years. It's like, wow, when's the bad thing coming, you know? <laughs> that was Tracy Lutz. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso, and today on the podcast is the one and only Tracy Letts. I think he is one of the strongest actors both on stage and on screen that we currently have. He's in two new films coming out. The first is called Little Women. It's uh, directed by Greta Gerwig. It's her follow-up to Lady Bird, which he was also brilliant in. That movie comes out December 25th, but... If you want to see Tracy sooner, and of course you do, you're listening to this podcast, 
He's in a new film called Ford v. Ferrari, and uh, it's directed by James Mangold. It stars Christian Bale, Matt Damon. In the film, Tracy plays Henry Ford II. I was about to explain the plot of the movie, and then I realized we can just play the trailer. You're going to build a car to beat Ferrari with a Ford. Correct. How long did you tell them that you needed? Two, three hundred years? 90 days. <laughs> this isn't the first time Ford Motors has gone to war. We know how to do more than push paper. Go ahead, Carol. Go to war. Thank you, sir. Do you think you can beat Ferrari? We're lighter, we're faster. That don't work, we're nastier. We're gonna make history. So that was a trailer, and as you could probably tell, that movie, which I saw a couple weeks ago, really fun, exhilarating, all the kinds of things you want in a sort of thriller action sports film is the ultimate like yacht rock dad movie it is a film i will totally watch with my family at least two or three times over the holidays and tracy who plays henry ford the second in the movie really does a fantastic job i mean it's the kind of role that could just become a caricature very easily yet he engenders the part with so much humanity and sincerity that uh, you can't help but watch and be mesmerized. This is true of every part uh, that I've seen Tracy Letts in. So I want to just get into this because this is a longer episode than usual. We planned to talk for an hour. We ended up talking for two hours. I think this is somewhere between 80 and 90 minutes. We kept a lot of it in, and Tracy's life is... Well, it's been a fascinating one. I'll leave it at that. And it was a tremendous honor to have him on. If you have not read Killer Joe or August Osage County, two plays that he wrote, I encourage you to do so. They can be found online, I think, for free. Because at a certain point, if the plays are good enough or popular enough, they become kind of academic texts. So uh, you can also buy them, which... I would encourage you to buy them first. But in case you can't buy them, they're out there and you should totally read uh, the work because aside from being such a brilliant actor, he's an incredible writer. And I think if this podcast does anything, I really believe uh, that if you listen to today's episode, you may have a better understanding of how Tracy has arrived at his work, both um, in front of the camera and on stage and on the page. A lot has happened to this man, and that he has managed to work through it, to not just get through it, but to work through it and to put his life in his art, I am very thankful for him. And uh, I'm very thankful that he came on to share some of his story with me. So I hope you enjoy the episode, and uh, without further ado... Here is the one and only 
Tracy Lutz. Tracy Lutz. Did I say that right? Yeah. <laughs> Just like it's spelled. What if I came in here with the absolute <laughs> you know, botching the, the pronunciation? <laughs> I wouldn't know what to think about that. You would think, oh, God, I can't believe I have to do this. <laughs> hour. Tell me again why I can't heat up my cold brew. It just, if you wanted the hot coffee, you should have got the hot coffee. This sort of indecisiveness, I'm surprised by it. Based on your life, you don't seem like an indecisive person. It wasn't indecisive. It was, uh, I mean, I decided I wanted a cold brew. <laughs> and then I decided I didn't like it. So I heated it up. Mm -hmm. I don't get the point, really. The cold brew? Yeah. What's the point? I... That's a larger existential question. I mean, I don't know if I can answer that responsibly. Are you good at knowing what you don't want and what you do want? I've gotten much better at knowing what I don't want. Right. Knowing what I do want is can still sometimes be tricky, but knowing what I don't want, <laughs> I've gotten pretty definitive about that. Is it just process by elimination? You just keep taking the things you don't want and then sometimes. you're left with one option? Sometimes. There's so many places to start in your life and career. But if you don't mind, I'd like to go to you around 1819. You decide to move to Dallas. The year 1819? 18 slash. <laughs> this is, all this grief is because I gave you some shit over that coffee. <laughs> Good Lord. So when I'm 18 or 19, yes. <laughs> all right. When you're 18 or 19, I'm not exactly sure when, you move to Dallas you leave your family in Oklahoma. You decide not to go to college and uh, have hopes of being an actor. Dallas at the time is billed as the third coast. Some movies are being shot there. You've heard things. You've heard that there's a chance one can make a career out there. What inspired that move? Where did that come from for you? They were making some movies in Texas at the time. They were, and some good movies too, Places in the Heart, Tender Mercies. I mean, there was a lot of, there was good stuff happening. And I had become interested in acting uh, maybe 15 years old. And I had done one semester of college in my hometown, uh, Durant, Oklahoma, Southeastern Oklahoma State University, where my folks taught. 12,000 people. Yeah. Well, in the town, not at the college. <laughs> it's a small college. and uh, But I was doing a lot of drugs and missing classes, and I was not into school, and I needed to get out of that small town. And Dallas was close. It was 100 miles away. And uh, I could still come home on the weekends. My mom would do my laundry. But I had also, uh, there was a I don't know what you'd call it, a, a seminar, a weekend seminar in which four Texas casting directors conducted a kind of auditioning seminar. And I had gone down and done this seminar. I don't know where I found out about it. I, uh, I'm sure the folks paid for it. I went down and did this weekend. And I got a lot of great feedback from these casting directors. And in fact, one of them got me an audition for something. It might have been for a role in Places in the Heart, in fact. 
uh, got me an audition for for a part in that, and I I didn't get it, but I was greatly encouraged by their interest in me, and I thought, yeah, I thought I could go down there and get an agent and work, and it's what I did. I went down and I got an agent. It didn't really work. Uh, you know, I worked some in Fringe Theater in Dallas for a couple of years, and I, you know, I did a little bit of extra work, uh, mm. that kind of thing. How did you feel like your life was going at that point? Uh, how do you ever feel like your life is going? I, I don't think I, I don't know how much self-appraisal I was doing at that point in my life. Uh, I mean, I was 18, 19 years old. Right. So. Uh, you were just excited to not be home. Yeah. Yeah. And figuring out who you are, how you conduct yourself in the world. So that's what I was into. I, the theater I did in Dallas was the best part of my time there. I, and uh, being able to work in professional theater or semi-professional theater, because I don't even recall if or how much I got paid. I mean, right. You weren't modest. there for payment, though. I mean, yeah, no. You were there to figure it out. But I was, uh, I was uh, finding real love of the theater. Mm-hmm. Weren't you in love at that point also? Uh, was I in love at 18, 19? I oh, was usually in love, but... Uh, is that true, usually? Yeah, often in love, but I don't recall. There was someone you were seeing, and the relationship eventually goes south. And... Uh, <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> this is what I've heard. I'm not cursed with these things you people call memories. Yeah, I've never heard you say that exact line before, in it's fact. so true. Is that is that a, a an adage of yours? <laughs> I stole it from a friend. Yeah, no. Do you want to give the friend credit now on the podcast? Bob Fisher. Okay, Bob. He, Bob, Bob doesn't recall saying it, which is why <laughs> I feel like I can get away with stealing it. <laughs> um. Well, the fact of the matter is, based on what I've read, is that you were with someone, she decides that she wants to move to Chicago. Mm. You, not taking the hint, decide to move to Chicago and follow her there. Does that sound anything like reality? I, again, it seems as if you've done your research, so maybe you know a version of that story I've told before. But uh, when I was... Uh, I guess 19, 20 years old, I did a, a one-man show at Theater 3. Uh, I didn't even do a one-man show. I did a staged reading of this one-man show at Theater 3 in Dallas. And there was a stage manager there, Jimmy Mullins. And he, uh, he, was, he got a job directing a production of Barefoot in the Park that toured through Norway and Sweden for four months. And he offered me the the lead in Barefoot in the Park. And, you know, other than as an infant, I had never been on an airplane. So the idea that I could fly out of Dallas and go to (laughs) Scandinavia and spend four months touring with a play seemed like a great idea. And I did it, and it was a great experience. And uh, there was a woman in the show who became my girlfriend. We returned to Dallas, and shortly thereafter, she moved to Chicago. (laughs) 
she moved to Chicago, and I, I don't know, did I follow her to Chicago? Did I, were we in touch? Were we still boyfriend and girlfriend? I actually don't recall the uh, answer well, I, to I this. I can tell you the answer is that only one of us will know, <laughs> and it is not me. <laughs> just, just so we're clear on that. Well, I don't know. In any case, she was my introduction to Chicago. She had been an apprentice at Actors Theatre of Louisville, a lot of her fellow apprentices had uh, relocated to Chicago because it was getting a great reputation as a theater town. In the wake of the success of Steppenwolf Theater, there was a real migration of actors from around the country to Chicago to do theater there. And so she had gone to be with her Actors Theater of Louisville people. I followed her up there and... uh, uh, and I, I like how you say this so skeptically, like I'm writing the script of your life or something. <laughs> well, I, I, because I genuinely don't recall. I don't know. How is that possible? Look, it's a long time ago, man. You're, you're like, going to find out how it's possible. You're like 52, 53? I'm 54 years old. Well, you don't look a day past 50. <laughs> you're going to realize that some of those... 18, 19 years old. Are you kidding? I I was doing a lot of drugs. I was drinking a lot. Can we get into this for a second? Because I think this is a part of anyone who wants to be creative. (laughs) Drugs are often part of the equation. They certainly were for me. Right. Not anymore, of course. I'm right. No, no, they still still are. (laughs) How much did that factor into your life? How did that contribute? And what were you doing? I didn't think about it in terms of how much it was factoring into my life. Right, or, like, was there any kind of negotiation that you were having? No. No. I was just doing everything I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's what your friends were doing? No, not really. In fact, I was kind of a kind of a square in high school. I didn't do a lot in the high school. But as soon as I got out of high school and got in with the theater crowd, you know, of course, at first I just started smoking a lot of pot. But then I... My one semester of college, I had a roommate who was uh, dealing cocaine, and uh, there were massive amounts of cocaine around our place, and we were freebasing like crazy. So I was freebasing <laughs> cocaine like a madman at 18. And uh, I developed a real uh, taste for, you know, I, I didn't care. I, any drug, I didn't care how low class it was. I'd do any drug you put in front of me. Mm. So, yeah, that went on for a long time. I got sober at, what, 28 so it went on for a long time. Do, do you, now that you're past that, I know you've been sober since I think 92 or 93, something like that. Right. Yeah. 93. Because I've just thought about it for myself. I have not freebased for the record, but I've had my fair share of stuff. And I do ask myself, why? Mm, good question. Right? Yeah. Do you have an answer to that at this point? Why you do it? No, Tracy. <laughs> We'll get to that after the show. (laughs) Hopefully by the end you can give me Well, but I think that's a, I actually think that's the answer to the question. I don't suppose why is the same for anybody. I did it because avoiding reality, addictive personality, uh, I wasn't doing it. There was no part of me thinking, oh, this will open up creative channels. There was nothing like that. It was just, uh, I viewed it probably as recreation. You know, just this is what you do after hours or this is what you do, you know, when you're not working. Very quickly, recreation can sort of take over as right. the, the sole purpose of your existence. And so I suddenly just, it's all recreation. Yeah, it's all recreation all day. 
Yeah. <laughs> and you wake up and you're like, well, it's been two years. Yes. <laughs> Why not uh, recreate today? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was, uh, you know, I, I don't. It's funny we're laughing about it, but I'm sure at the time it wasn't particularly funny. You're right. It wasn't. Uh, and getting sober was not funny at all. Getting sober was serious business and, and was uh, was a real uh, journey for me of uh, some, we talked about not having any powers of self-appraisal. When I was 18 or 19, I, I don't think I had ever spent any time in self-appraisal until I got sober. Right. Does your sort of like absence of memory that you like to cling on <laughs> to coincide with those times of before you got sober? Yeah, but I don't know if it's because it's before I got sober or because it's further Chicken back. Chicken or the egg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, when you were working, you know, you moved to Chicago and, and your first role is in the Glass Menagerie, which you had previously done in Dallas. It was a big deal to do that for Steppenwolf, although you weren't a member of the company. You got this part pretty early on upon moving there. Did that feel momentous to you? Well, you say it was a big deal. It was only a big deal to me. It wasn't a big deal That's to anybody I else. I, yeah. was, I wasn't talking about the people of Chicago. <laughs> yeah. No, it was only a big deal to me. And it was a big deal to me because I had gone to Chicago uh, in 86, and I had spent a year in Chicago in 1986, 21 years old, and I had not gotten any work, nothing. I, I couldn't get arrested. And, uh, yeah, maybe I could have gotten arrested. Uh, but I was, I finally just went broke and had to leave and went back home to Oklahoma. And I got a job teaching some, I don't know how I got a teaching job. I didn't have a degree. I got a job tutoring some kids during the summer. And then I got a job editing textbooks for Harcourt Brace Jovanovich in Orlando, Florida. I don't know how I got that gig either. It was a pretty good paying gig. That sounds like torture <laughs> the textbooks in orlando those that combination yeah it wasn't great <laughs> it wasn't great but i made some money and i said i'm going back to chicago i think there's something there for me and so i went back to chicago and the first thing i got when i went back was glass menagerie so it was momentous to me in that sense it's like oh i'm glad i stuck it out i'm glad i came back but when i say it was not a big deal to anybody but me or what seemed momentous at the time wasn't momentous at all in that I, it's not like it turned into steady work at Steppenwolf. Right. It didn't, it didn't translate into anything else. It was just personally important. Yeah. 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 Did you think you were good at that time? As an actor? Yeah. Yeah. I was good. I mean, you know, I, I, I wasn't, uh, I like the confidence of this. Well, I wasn't, I probably wasn't technically proficient. I, most young stage actors aren't at that phase, but uh, I had a lot of intensity and uh, and I had some facility with language and uh, and I cared deeply about the work I was doing. So yeah, I was I wasn't great, but yeah, I was good. Is it hard for you to say that? No, because you know many people, especially in acting have a personality or a temperament that doesn't generate that kind of answer very often. I'm sure you're familiar with this. Sure. Yeah. I wonder how, 
Well, everybody's different. You're wondering how performative that is. Yeah, I am. But also everybody's different. I mean, there are probably some people who were good at that age who could never see themselves as good. Mm -hmm. There are probably some people who are lying, who knew they were good. and it's False modesty. Yeah. But you thought you were good because you put in the work, right? And that you had, had this kind of intangible intensity to your performance. You know, when I was first starting, when I was... 15, I got a job. My first job in the theater was at Community Theater in Tishomingo, Oklahoma. Woman wanted to cast my dad, who was a local actor, right? He Mm -hmm. did community theater and college theater. And she wanted to cast my dad in a production she was doing of the Solid Gold Cadillac. And dad didn't want to drive to Tishomingo. So he turned it down. So she came and she offered me a job as the narrator knowing that at 15, dad would have to drive me to rehearsals. So if he was doing that, he'd have to, he might as well take the job. So he did. And my first play was with my dad. And uh, we did Solid Gold Cadillac together. And that was where I first discovered some joy, just in the community of it, and decided I wanted to do it again. And I did a couple more shows. I can't, I genuinely can't recall what was next, quite the order of it. But there was a community theater production of Skin of Our Teeth that was co-directed by my father and a a guy he taught with in the English department. And they co-directed Skin of Our Teeth. And uh, no budget uh, in a community center in Duran, Oklahoma. Doing it because you love it. And it's a a big play. And I, I played a small part. I played the Telegraph Boy, which is the part that Dick Van Patten played when he was a in the original Broadway production. It's a small role for an ingenue boy and uh, also part of the ensemble. But anyway, I was doing this play and my dad said to me at one point, (laughs) he said, why are you declaiming everything? Why are you, it sounds like you're making a speech. Why don't you just say it? And I stood up there and I just said it. I tried to do what my dad asked me to do and I just said it. And uh, I could feel the power of it in the room. I could feel the power of just speaking in the room without. Pretense. Yeah. I started to get good at that point. Something clicked for me. Now, again, I'm a teenager in a small town in Oklahoma. I'm not saying I was a great actor, but I was on to something in my own development as an actor. That, you know, by the time I did Glass Menagerie, four years later, I had done some shows in Dallas. I had had a little bit of experience under my belt, and I had developed that awareness of the power of a single performer speaking simply and truthfully in a room. Mm. Did you feel you could speak more simply and truthfully on stage than in your life? Yeah. Well, I could. I don't know how aware of that I was, but I definitely could. Mm -hmm. Because off stage, I was full of shit. I mean, like most 18, 19, 20-year-olds, I was totally full of shit. This, This much full of shit? Or like th- this much. You know, the, the listeners can't see what you're doing with your hands. Well, you're, you're an actor. Help me out. <laughs> Jesus. I was really full of shit. You're full of shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And now? Oh, I'm still full of <laughs> shit. <laughs> Maybe not as much. <laughs> I bring this up because there is a wonderful quote you have that you probably can't remember because... <laughs> So you have this quote from the New York Times a couple years back. Jesus. 
If somebody can get up and express themselves in a beautifully phrased poetic monologue, I sometimes think that leaves the little guy out. Sometimes it leaves me out. I'm the first one to turn and say, what was that? What did I miss? Is that his brother? Are you supposed to be related? <laughs> I like Shakespeare, but I never know what the hell is going on. You're talking about theater, but you're also talking about yourself here. And that there is some part of you that does not relate to the uninterrupted, eloquent, poetic monologue, but likes and identifies with the kind of emotional stumbling. Identifies with is the key phrase there in your question. Because the truth is I can appreciate Shakespeare. I can appreciate eloquence in others. Right. I can appreciate tour de force writing and tour de force acting. But no, I don't necessarily relate to it. I relate more to people of earth, <laughs> people of earth stumbling around making mistakes. Yeah. I think you're doing a good job so far. <laughs> I'm sorry, you sent me up. <laughs> you know, many would look at your resume, if they were to look at it, they would see someone by the end of their 20s, around 27, 28, having some success in acting, pivoting and writing Killer Joe. I want to go back to this time because you're in Chicago, you're writing because you're an actor and there's downtime. And you either, I think, as an actor, go crazy or you make something useful of yourself. Right. And it's at this point that you decide that you need to be sober. Is that right? Yeah. What happened? So I wrote as a little kid. I was always interested in writing. I was a reader and a writer. And I had written a couple of screenplays in my Dallas days. I'd written a couple of bad screenplays. But it had never really occurred to me to write a play until I had been doing it for a number of years, especially doing it in Chicago for a number of years, in storefront theaters, small black box theaters, very limited set, small audiences, anywhere from 30 to 150 seat. With the primacy of the actor, the actor is in such close proximity to the audience in those places. It's one of the things I love about Chicago theater. And so it was the first time it started to occur to me to write for the stage. And Killer Joe was created with the idea that I could get it done. I wasn't going to write something that I had to rely on somebody else making an executive decision or investing a lot of money to get it done. I wrote Killer Joe with the sense that I, I could self-produce it. So unit set, five young actors. At the time, I was reading a lot of noir fiction, pulp fiction. I was reading a lot of Jim Thompson, an alcoholic writer from Anadarko, Oklahoma. And I was really interested in Thompson's work. And I was curious if it could work on the stage. I had even thought about trying to do an adaptation of Postman Always Rings Twice mm. uh, for the stage. And I just couldn't think of examples. I mean, there some things kind of bordered on it. Key Largo, or I mean, there there are a few examples of of plays that that border on that kind of fiction, but I'd never seen sort of hardcore, undiluted pulp fiction put on stage. So I wondered if that would work. And at the same time, I read a story in a in the News of the Weird, which was a little column that ran in the Chicago Reader, and it was a story about a family in Florida in which 
the father and son and a family were going to kill the mother for her insurance money. And then the father and mother discovered that the son was cheating them on a drug deal. And so they decided to kill the son instead. And there was something about the... Just another Saturday. Yeah. Just something about the ease of the decision of the father, right? right. Oh, I'm going to kill my wife. No, I'm going to kill my son. And so that was sort of the basis for Killer Joe. So I wrote it. And Jim Thompson was a madman. I mean, he wasn't, of course. He was a writer, and he was trying to make a living, and he was a drunk, and uh, he was trying to write what sold. But one of his gifts was to the reader wasn't sure that a, there was a moral presence at the helm of these stories, <sighs> right? There was really a, a sense of chaos reigns or amorality behind the whole thing. That tends to worry people. It does. It gets under people's skin. And so Killer Joe was written very much in that mode. I was drinking heavily and I was writing while drunk frequently. And much of it came out in a really dark alcoholic tumble. That was 1990 that I wrote that play. And then for two years, I found out that I couldn't get it done. That in fact, I did have to rely on somebody else to make an executive decision to get it done. And eventually the next theater in Evanston said, all right, you've knocked on enough doors now. We'll, mm -hmm. we'll do this. And board members at the next theater quit over it because they were so disturbed by its content. And I'd been told, given all kinds of warnings about how it was going to, you know, create people were going to protest or mm -hmm. storm out of the theater. None of that happened. Of course, it's just a play. And it was panned by the critics almost universally. Richard Christensen, writing for the Chicago Tribune, though, gave it a great review. And it's one of the reasons the play ran for a long time and ultimately became a success. Your question, I think, started with a question about alcoholism. The truth is that three weeks after the show opened, I had gotten to a place in my life where things had really gone off the rails. And I went into my first AA meeting. And have been sober since that day. Was there a tipping point event? Yeah, I had started doing uh, heroin and uh, that was part of it. I had left my longtime girlfriend who I was very close to, obviously, and uh, I had not left her in, a, in an ethical way. I had been dishonest with her. Things were just really going off the rails. I was losing some friendships. And actually, somebody kind of reported on me to my dad, and uh, he flew up to Chicago just to tell me he loved me and he was worried about me and he wished I would try to get some help for this problem I had. Do you remember that conversation? Yeah, I do. I mean, I don't remember all the particulars, but I remember the substance of it. Yeah. That seems like a scary talk to me. Yeah, it was very scary. The idea of disappointing my parents was upsetting to me uh, then and now. Right. So that was certainly one of the part of the reason I, I eventually went to a meeting. But it was it was a collection of a lot of things. And the play horrified me. <laughs> it really did. It bothered me. I was delighted by the success of it, but it was hard for me to watch. In fact, I would walk out during parts of the rehearsal because they were so upsetting to me. I was just like, oh, man, I got to get out of the room. It was very troubling to me. 
which is great. I mean, it's what it was designed to do. The fact that it was troubling me in the same way that it was designed to trouble the audience was probably a good sign, right? Oh, the play is functioning at the level I want it to function. It's a very good sign. Yeah. So all of those things conspired to get me into my first meeting. And, uh, well, to say I'm grateful that I did or glad that I did is such understatement. I can't imagine what my life would be right now had I not gone into that meeting. Uh, well, what ends up happening based on my accounting is that the play does well, goes to Europe, does even better over there. I think someone in England says, why could you stay and write something else? You write a play called Bug. That also does well. Shortly thereafter, you perform in a play written by Steve Martin. Um, the play does exceptionally well. You are very good in it, according to what people say. You're apparently good in this. I read something that you were funny and, and human and all those. I mean, I don't know if I was even born yet, but I'm, I believe them. I believe them. Let's say we believe them. And in the process... When, when were you born? We'll get to that at the end. <laughs> and in the process of doing this play, you come out here to Los Angeles. Mm. I don't remember the theater. It is now the Geffen Playhouse. I know that. You meet a manager, I think. Something like it. They put you through the rounds. You do a, a bit part on home improvement. The play finishes. You go back to Chicago. You decide we ought to move out to Los Angeles. You were with the woman at the time. This part of the story I don't like very yeah. much. And I don't even know you and I don't know your life. Right. But it, but it, it really... Uh, you come here with someone you love in the hopes of changing your life and career in some ways. It's far away from Steppenwolf. Right. It's far away from Oklahoma. How do you go through those first four months here and what happens? So Holly Wontuck is her name. She was the woman I had left. I spoke about unethically during my alcoholism when it had gotten bad and we had gotten back together. And we'd been together almost seven years. We moved out here in September of 1997. Loaded the car, loaded all the pets. She was a, a lover of animals. We had two dogs and three cats. Oh, uh, my God. Yeah. They drove all the way across state? Drove from Chicago to Los Angeles. U-Haul and you know, friends helped us move. And we, uh, we came out here and we moved out here in September. And uh, I guess I had an agent situation set up and started to audition out here. One of the first things I did was Seinfeld. Uh, might have been the first thing I auditioned for out here, or one of the first things. Mm -hmm. And I booked it. It was the last season of Seinfeld. And so I did that. And uh, Episode called Festivus. I think it's called The Strike. But it it's is known the as the it Festivus the episode. Yeah. I should know this because I've seen Seinfeld <laughs> all the way through, I think, 15 times. <laughs> And uh, it was a great gig. It was encouraging. It was like, oh, I think I might be able to work out here. I might be able to string some work together. But my girlfriend, Holly, had a congenital heart condition. She had a, an enlarged heart. And the people who studied enlarged hearts told us it was the largest enlarged heart they'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. So she was on a lot of medications. She had been... Considered for transplant. Transplant wasn't as common then as it is now. So she had a tough medical condition and a, a tough lifestyle because of it. She uh, didn't have a lot of physical strength. 
she had uh, been in my production of Killer Joe. She had done it all the way through the Chicago run as well as the London run. It went Scotland, the small theater in London, then the West End. So she had done all of that. And then in January of 1998, she suffered a series of strokes and uh, wound up in the ICU at Cedar sinai and she died on January 26, 1998. And, uh, yeah, we were both, what were we, 30, 32 years old, is that right? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we had been together for seven years at that point, and it was... Uh, I mean, there's no way to even describe how devastating it was for me. Certainly devastating for everybody who knew and loved Holly and her family. But, yeah, it was... uh, Did it feel surreal? Oh, God, yes. I had nothing to relate it to. I mean, I had lost grandparents. But I had never lost anybody close to me. Certainly, I hadn't lost anybody who slept in bed next to me for seven years. It was, yeah, it was totally surreal. And changed my life in untold ways, changed my life in ways that impact me. Even now, I'm sure that I can't possibly get my arms around. It's a huge life-changing thing. How did you manage in that time when she's sick and it's going south? You're with her in these moments, and you have to be, right? You're at the hospital. You're here. How do you get through that? How do you even do that? I don't know what that looks like even. Well... It's horrible. Ultimately, I got through it with, you know, friends and family. My own family loved Holly dearly, and they were very devastated themselves. My parents would tell me years later, they would say, that was harder on us than the deaths of our own parents. That had a bigger impact on them. And uh, I had a community of friends out here. Most of them were Chicago transplants, people who had come out here to try to make their living and... uh they were great with me. They were also going through their own grief over the moment, and they were process many of them processing death for the first time in their lives. But they were, uh, they really held me up. And uh, I don't know anything I say about that time, about getting through that time. Is, I know. I, uh, I can see it. I can see it on you. <laughs> it's insufficient. Yeah. There's no way to. There's no way to describe it. There's no way. To fully understand it, I mean, I've spent years in therapy. I've spent years trying to process it, trying to figure it out. Ways in which relationships I had after Holly, which just were awful or good. I mean, I was involved with some great people, but I wasn't equipped. I didn't have the language, the understanding, the the self-appraisal. I didn't have those gifts to be able to deal with those uh, people. So... You know, don't throw it away. (laughs) I'm not going to throw it away. What I'm going to say is that every life has this stuff in it. Every life, every person goes through their own version of trauma. And so everybody has to find their way through it, around it, deal with it, don't deal with it. Everybody has, has it as part of their history. That's just a big mountain in the middle of mine. And then you stay. Yeah, I stayed. I stayed for a while. Four years. I stayed for four years. And uh, I don't know if, look, there's no right or wrong thing to do, but that's what I did. I had made the move out here and I stayed. And I worked a little bit 
not enough to make me feel like I was accomplishing anything. Did you feel like you couldn't go back to Chicago at that time? I tried. In fact, I had gone back shortly after. Well, we'd gone back for memorial services and funerals and stuff. And when I went back, I was like, oh, I'll never come back here. The city is haunted. The city is, I mean, every, it was like, oh, that's where we had our first date. That's where we, blah, blah. That's where we did a show, et cetera, et cetera. So it felt haunted to me. So that's one reason I didn't go back to Chicago. But four years later, when I went back to Chicago, a lot of people said, geez, what are you doing back here? It seemed like you were doing all right out in LA. It's like, eh, not really. I was stringing together a little work on a TV show here, TV show there, but not, not enough. Sometimes... I think there was a period of there close to a year where I went without work. Mm-hmm. It was also the kind of work that is about as far away from Steppenwolf as you can get. Yeah, I wasn't doing any writing of any substance. I was taking meetings as a writer, but I didn't understand what I was trying to do. I had a couple of meetings where I actually asked the people I was meeting with, I was like, why are you meeting with me? I don't even understand why we're meeting. You led with that? I didn't always lead with it. I got to a point where I asked. I had, took a meeting at Disney. They were remake. No, it wasn't a remake. They had had a script kicking around for a number of years, and they were looking for somebody to rewrite it. It was a dumb baseball comedy. So they had me out, and it, I mean, it was my first meeting at Disney, and if you've ever been out there, there's you know these enormous dwarves holding as pillars, right? They look like something out of Nuremberg. And you walk through these dwarves to get into the office, and then the guy sits there and he says, so let's talk about this baseball comedy. And I I was sort of at my wit's end at that point. This was one of the last meetings I took. And mm-hmm. I said to him, why am I here? Why are you Why are you meeting with me? Do you know my work? I mean, my work at that point consisted of Killer Joe and Bug. And you're talking to me about rewriting a baseball comedy. And he said, he leveled with me. He showed me a list. He said, see this list? This is a list of people I have to meet with. And I have to check these people off my list. And once I've met with those people, I get to go to my boss. And I say, I've met with all these people. I said, so in other words, you don't have any real interest in me rewriting this, do you? He said, no, not really. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Have you seen Sunset Boulevard? Sure. I mean, that is the third scene of the movie. (laughs) He goes into Paramount or something like it, and he is asked to write a baseball comedy. (laughs) Is that right? Yeah. I've forgotten that. Yeah, it's like like stolen base (laughs) or third base or some shit, and I think it's all like women playing baseball or, or something like it, and he's like, I don't. I don't know how to do this. I've never done anything like it. I mean, you just described. I'm not saying you took this from Billy Wilder. I'm not. I'm not. I think you're an original guy. They eventually made that movie. It took a few years, but they did remake that that make that movie. Somebody took that job and they got it made. The Natural? No, it was a, a comedy. <laughs> That's not a comedy? They. I also remember the meeting I had about Willy Wonka. Oh, and I said, uh, you would have been perfect for that. <laughs> I said, have, have you seen the original? It's pretty good. It's even in color. Why are you remaking this? Even. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, they didn't care. They remade it anyway and made a, you know, billion dollars. Yeah. You could have been part of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no regrets. No. Well, some, but you go back to Chicago. This whole time I've been reading about you and talking about Chicago, it's like I grew up there. So I'm, I'm really very much enjoying hearing about your personal history in the city. And except for the bad parts, I don't enjoy that part. 
They finally accept you in Steppenwolf as a member under the condition that you do not leave Chicago. Yeah, uh, off the books, that condition, an unofficial condition. Well, it's official now. We're talking yeah. about it on a podcast. <laughs> that didn't matter to you because you didn't want to leave anyway. Well, I don't know that I would have stayed, actually, had they not added me to the ensemble. Mm. I was really kind of adrift. You were? Yeah. Uh, four years in L.A. had not panned out in my mind. You know, when I came out to L.A., I was 32, and I had thoughts of being in movies and TV still, a leading man in movies and TV. And it wasn't, it took a while before I, I was a little late to realize, oh, that's not going to happen for me. You know, you have these dreams that get you into this business. Uh, Most people I know do. And then eventually you have to adapt as you realize, oh, that dream's not going to happen. This isn't going to pan out the way I thought. Mm -hmm. It's not a great tragedy to realize, oh, I'm not going to be a leading man in the movies. It's not it's certainly not a great tragedy, but you adapt. And it's like at that point, I also had a playwriting career. I also had done enough film and TV at that point that I realized how much more I liked the theater. Mm. I didn't like working in film and TV. I certainly didn't like it as a day player or a week weekly player showing up and always feeling like it was the first day of school and not knowing people by name. I was very uncomfortable. And so when I moved back to Chicago... I was a bit adrift. I wanted to work in the theater, but I also knew I couldn't make a living. I took this kind of vow of poverty. I went back knowing that, look, I'm happiest in the theater, and I'm going to work in the theater, and I know I'm not going to make any money because people in Chicago don't make any money. But I also knew that what was I was 36 years old, and uh, I, you know, I had a fork. You know, I didn't, I didn't own anything. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a credit card. I couldn't rent a car. I mean, it was like, and there comes a point at 36 years old where you go, I don't have any, I don't have a relationship. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have a, you know, in some ways you're footloose and fancy free. And in other ways you go, wow, I'm really not making it. So I was, I was a bit adrift. I didn't know what I was going to do. And it was only when Steppenwolf said, yeah, we'll add you to the company, but there is a, this kind of unofficial condition. We, want you to, we don't want you to join the company and then rush right back out to L.A. We want you to stay here and act in plays. And it was, it was a foothold. Mm. It was like, oh, I'm, I'm tethered. Grounded. I, yeah. It was a great feeling. I, I didn't hesitate. I say, yeah, of course I'll stay. Mm. The idea of you finding footing after 36 years of... I wouldn't call it stumbling, but hopscotching or, or, or whatever the hell you'd call it. I, stumbling's fine. Okay. I just don't want to be derogatory. Shambling. My wife's been using the word shambling lately. We're, we're not sure if it's a... It's she even said shumbling today. It's like, I like the sound of that. Shumbling, shambling. shambling. <laughs> Your wife's much smarter than me. Let's go with that. Did you fall in love being back in Chicago? Did that help? Because you said you were without mortgage, you were without love, you were without a kind of stability. Sometimes when the stability comes in one department, it arrives altogether. I don't think so. I, I mean, the footing I found was in the theater, was working in the theater, working at Steppenwolf and doing two or three shows a year, working really steadily. Just for a while, they would call and say, we've got a part we want to talk to you about. It. And I would say, yes. They would say, well, do you want to read the script? I said, nope, I don't care. Uh, the answer is yes. If somebody wants to use me in a play at Steppenwolf, I'm in. And so I just said yes to 
it was more about throwing myself into the work. I did have, I had girlfriends in right. Chicago after I came back. But again, I think being impacted by Holly's death, I didn't necessarily get in those relationship on the up and up. I don't think I was honest with myself about who I was and what I was looking for. Sure, I fall in love. I have fallen in love. And I fell in love a couple of times after coming back to Chicago. I like that you're almost smiling here. Yeah, well, love. <laughs> Who doesn't smile at love? <laughs> it's a real pain in the ass. <laughs> but again, not successful relationships, ultimately, right? I mean, we say successful if what they... are you saying, right to me? <laughs> what the hell do I know? I forget my own inexperience, but it's your life. I mean, right. Yeah, right. Sure, Tracy, yes. Well, I'd simply mean that... I know, I'm just giving you grief. A relationship ends either because somebody dies or it's not or you break up because it's no longer successful those are the only two ways a relationship ends mm -hmm. my wife and i often joke that it's like oh we should just end it now while everything is going great nobody right. ever just like shakes hands and says let's leave on a high point yeah really only <laughs> the beatles and seinfeld did that they were like you know what it's going all right i think i think that's it i don't think Another yeah, record? The relationship has never ended that way. No, so. I know. It would be wonderful. I mean, it's kind of like gambling. I mean, I've, can you imagine? I mean, I don't know if you gambled, but I've gambled. I can't imagine, and I do gamble. I, I, in fact, I went into a OTB with my father, and he sat down in the first race he bet on. He won three grand. I mean, he, it was uh, yeah. it was a great it was racing day. It was the first race of the day. Yeah. He won three grand. He had to fill out the tax form and it was everything. Always, it was always the first one. And I said, Dad, let's go. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, I didn't come here to win money. I came here to gamble. Yeah. You know. Yeah, so. exactly. It's exactly that. Uh, in the mid-2000s, 2005, 2006, you start writing August Osage County. You said prior to writing this play... That you were incapable of loving someone fully. That you had shut down a part of yourself prior to writing this. These are just your words. I don't recall that at all. That sounds like bullshit. Okay. Well, let's get it. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find it. <laughs> oh, I'm, you don't have to look it up. I'm no, telling no, you right no. now. I'm sure I said it, but it's total bullshit. Okay. Oh, okay. That's, that makes yeah. me feel so much better. Yeah. <laughs> that is bullshit. Yeah. No, it's so my you, bullshit. Yeah. Why would you say that? I have no idea. Trying to get through an interview. Oh, God, I hope you haven't felt like you're trying to get through anything here. You know, this is a weird thing. You do these interviews, and then you, uh, I don't know how most people are, I walk away from them, and I say, was any of that true, accurate? You know, somebody asks you a question, and you give an answer because it sounds like it fits. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like telling a story, right? You relate a story about something that happened, and then you find yourself telling the same story later on. It's like, oh, I found, a, I found a way to tell that story. There, here's some... Here's some editorial ideas I can add to that story. And before too long, it's like, how much of the story even happened? Right. Well, these interviews, I got to tell you, I, there's a reason I don't listen to them because I worry that they're all just bullshit. Okay. So I'm, I'm sure I said what you're describing I said. I don't recall saying it, but if I said it, it was total bullshit. Great. I, I hope within the you know, doing this conversation, I'm going to say conversation, I don't really... The term interview really upsets me. Um, Mark Marin. I'm sorry to bring that up, but no, I, I don't no, no, know no. if he's competition or whatever, but he says the same thing. He calls them talks. No, he no, calls it they're, a talk. they're not. We're not in competition because 
I do proper research. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. You know, Mark's a friend of mine, and I can't wait. I hope he hears that at some point. It would delight me to know it. God, I hope so, too. (laughs) (laughs) No, in all sincerity, this show wouldn't have happened without finding his. Oh, right. My own. Right. uh, Criticisms of the show are unrelated to that. Right. That was just a petty, fun joke. <laughs> and he should know about that because yeah. that's all he makes. Sure. Right? He's made a career. That, God, I can't stop. It's just when you just get in there. It's when your mother's a lawyer, you know, she just, just can't jab. Okay. So a story you have told a handful of times that I want to make sure we talk about is uh, the year of, of 2007. You finish writing this play. It's uh, put on stage... Uh, in Chicago, the summer of 2007. Yeah. In September of 2007, your father's diagnosed. Lung cancer. Lung cancer. That same exact week in which your father is diagnosed with lung cancer, your parents' home in Tulsa is flooded. Yeah. You didn't think the play was going to go much of anywhere. Then it gets picked up for Broadway. You're then asked to rewrite the play. For Broadway, or at least portions of it. Well, asked to. I I wanted to. I wanted to rewrite the play. Yeah. My apologies. You know, I keep going back to this, Tracy, but how? (laughs) That was a tough time. It it was a... So, yeah, the play started in in the summer of 2007, and Dad was in the show. You know, he hadn't originally been cast in the show. Another actor uh, named Chelsea Ross had been cast, but Chelsea got a movie and left the show to do his movie. I mean, well in advance. I, there was nothing untoward about Chelsea. But uh, Dad wasn't my idea. Anna Shapiro, the director, and her husband, Jan Barford, both said, why don't you use your dad? It sounds like your dad's voice. And uh, I had to think about it a little bit because I was I was very close with my dad, but there's father-son stuff, and I thought, well, what would you think about uh, one of your parents sitting here watching you conduct your podcast, your conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it changes the workplace dynamic, changes the way you would do your job. And I wanted to make sure I could still do my job and I didn't want it to uh, impact negatively my relationship with my dad. Not that it would have. I mean, we were close. And uh, isn't it a... I'm going to misquote John Waters here. Anybody over the age of 30 still fighting with their parents is an asshole. I love that. And uh, I wasn't fighting with my parents. And I, I said, yeah, let's ask Dad. And I, I had no ex- expectation he would want to do it. He was 72 at the time, I think. Why would he not want to do it? I mean, he'd had success acting in TV and film later in his life. He loved doing it. He'd drive to all parts of Texas to act. Why would he not want to do his son's play? I guess I thought there was his film and TV career had slowed. And I guess I thought there might be a part of him that would say, that sounds challenging and I'm not up for it at the age of seven. I don't want to take on that challenge. But that, that, that sound like your father, not up for challenge? Well, <laughs> well, I, <laughs> he, he showed me the truth of the matter when I offered him the job and he said yes. I mean, before I finished the question, he said, yes, I'm in. And I'm thrilled he did. He was great in the show. He brought an authenticity to the play. I mean, beyond being my father, which had its own 
stuff. He brought an authenticity to the role that was really showed the audience the world they were entering into. And all the father-son stuff was great. It was actually great. Even the, I can't even call them moments of conflict. You know, my dad was a, he was a PhD. He was a Fulbright scholar. He was an excellent editor. He gave me a lot of great advice about the show. But there was one day he was getting up to do his first scene and he just sort of casually stopped at the desk on his way up to start the scene and he pointed at a spot on the script and he said, uh, you see here where it says, uh, girls, I'm going to change that to kids. And he started up on stage and I, I looked at it and I said, no, actually no. And he turned around and said, I, I actually don't want you to change that. I want you to keep that the way it is. And he kind of gave me a, oh, oh, <laughs> I'm like, I get it. Oh, I guess you're in charge. You know, that kind of attitude. And he got up and a couple of weeks later, he said, you know what? You were right about that. I, now that I've done it a while, I, I realize you were right about that. So all that kind of stuff, it was not a, we never had any father son trouble over things. You know, what's funny is that my dad so mistrusted organizations, institutions. I mean, a fundamental part of his character was a, a great distrust of that. And I had learned how to work inside an organization. I had learned to work not only with an ensemble of actors, but I had learned to work in this institutional way after a few years with Steppenwolf. And I think it surprised him to see my ability to, uh, frankly, be politic at times, which you have to be when you're going to work in an institution. I don't think he was disappointed by that. I think he was kind of fascinated by that. It was just the difference in us. He was great in the show. Yeah, we did the run of the show. The show went so much better in Chicago than anybody could have anticipated. It was clear that it was filling a, an audience need which as a writer is a very gratifying moment when you find that you're fulfilling the needs of the audience. And very shortly thereafter, we realized we were going to be a Broadway show and that they wanted to take the entire cast, which would not happen today, by the way. The Broadway landscape has changed already in just the last 10, 12 years. But that was going to happen for us. And yeah, Dad, then uh, we closed in late August in Chicago. First week of September, my dad turned 73. He got diagnosed uh, stage four lung cancer. He and my mom lost their home and had to move into a hotel in Tulsa. And we were supposed to open on Broadway in October. And uh, well, it was mind boggling. And I, I, I can't fucking tell you how I did it. I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I got through it. I mean, one thing at a time, you do one thing at a time. Well, first thing is I got to make sure that the producers are cool with casting my father, who's, you know, I'm going to be upfront with them about what we're facing. And the producers were great. They were on board. They said, we're going to help you take care of your dad and we're going to get you, uh, we're going to get him a good understudy. So if he has to miss shows, we, we don't feel like the show is suffering. We're going to help you deal with this. And then the next thing was to get my father uh, enrolled at Sloan Kettering Hospital for treatment and evaluation and care and all that stuff. And then the next thing was to find them an apartment in New York City. It was just one thing after another right. and trying to rewrite, rewrite my play at the same time. It was very task-oriented. Yeah. It was just like, the, here's what you have to do. Right. How do you manage the storm? And then once we took care of all of that and we're just about to start, the stage hands went on strike and our 
opening was delayed and we didn't know how long it was going to be delayed. And I didn't know how long my dad had left to live. I found out later that there were a lot of investors of the show of August who wanted to pull out at that point. It was a risky enough proposition without having to keep people in town who were out of town contracts. They just wanted to pull the plug on the thing. But Jeffrey Richards, the producer, he stuck with the show and it was a good thing he did. We eventually did the stagehand strike went on about three weeks, I think, and pushed our opening to December. So dad got to open with the show and he did the show into January. I think he eventually stopped performances in January and he died on February 22nd. I think it was around the 15th was his last January 15th. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. What was it like watching him? Oh, he was fantastic. Again, he was so great in the show, and he was so uh, authentic, and uh, he was a terrific actor, my dad. It's funny. He uh, he was getting notes all the time from the director about uh, not being loud enough. He wasn't accustomed to acting on big stages, and so he wasn't being loud enough. And he finally said one day he got tired of getting the note, and he said, well, I'm just going to go out and scream the whole goddamn thing. Great. Do it. And he went out and he screamed the whole goddamn thing. It's like, yep, we heard every word. Thank you. I was like, really? Uh, yep, we heard everything. And so he continued to scream it for a while, which was, again, was preferable to not being able to hear anything he said. And then there came a point where I went to see the show. We were on Broadway and we were in previews. And I was actually backstage before the show. And I heard him over the monitor. And he had, it, it, it was kind of, going back to that very first acting lesson he had given me when doing Skin of Our Teeth because he had dropped down, he had found the voice that could be heard in the theater, projected to the back wall, but was not screaming, still had an intimacy about it, still had his uh, sense of just speaking and telling the truth. And he was, from that point on, he was fantastic. He was great to hear. And yet he did all this despite the fact that he knew his health was deteriorating. Yeah. Yeah, he kept a... He was scared of uh, coughing up blood during the show, so he kept a white handkerchief in his hand the whole time he was doing the show in case he had to cough and blood would come out. He was terrified that he, that somehow that would be exposed to the audience. What were those conversations like with him in those two months? I mean, December and January where he's still performing and you can see him, although his performance is getting better and he's somehow creating this character in a way that's more full and, and three-dimensional. You have him in real time. I just can't fathom what the hell that conversation, what those talks are like. I mean, it's parents are hard enough in general. Well, he didn't want to talk about death. My mother didn't want to talk about death. I mean, it was present. And uh, my dad was comfortable with death. He wasn't scared of death, especially. But he didn't want, he just didn't want to dwell on it. My parents would get to a point with friends of theirs where they, they would tell me, like, ah, we can't hang around with them anymore. All they want to do is talk about their illnesses. And it's so boring. And he was very conscious of, of it being boring. And even when he wound up in the hospital in the end days, he would look at us sitting around and be like, why don't you get the hell out of here? I, I, go eat dinner or something. I can't imagine anything more boring than sitting in a hospital room. How did you process that? As genuine. I, I believed him. I believed that he was looking at people who he loved, who he didn't want to see sitting around a hospital room. Did he want some private time too? Sure. I'm sure he did. 
<laughs> I remember they, uh, at one point they brought in a, I don't know what they call it exactly, some kind of counselor, a, a death counselor to come in and talk about, you know, have you, will help with your transition if you've worked certain things out. And dad was kind of way ahead of the conversation in some ways. And uh, she said, well, do you, do you have anything you feel you want to say to your sons? Do you have any any hidden resentments or anything you want to share? And dad looked rather perplexed by that and said, no, I really, uh, you know, we've we've had our moments over the years, but I don't, we don't have stuff like that hanging over us. And she said, well, what about if your sons have something they want to say to you? And <laughs> dad said, well, then man, have at it. <laughs> He was totally comfortable with all of that. So we didn't talk a lot about death. We talked about he was excited by the show and the success of the play. He loved being a part of the play. And I think it kept him alive. I don't want to say it kept him alive longer. The truth is he didn't live that long with lung. Some people have it a lot longer. But it kept him, kept his mind on something else, something that was fun and had meaning for him and was a sense of ensemble, a sense of belonging with that company. He'd always wanted to be an actor. He'd wanted to be an actor as a kid, and it was a, a dream he had abandoned at an early, early age, and something that kind of kept coming back up in his life. Oh, I'll do this play at the college. I'll do this play at the community theater. Oh, now I'm going to get into film and TV. and made some film and TV. But I, to be a part of an acting company like that, acting on Broadway, uh, was beyond his expectations for himself. So... It was actually a beautiful time. And when he died, a lot of people said to me, oh, you're, you're going to feel lucky about... Uh, and I would look at them like they were insane and say, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. There's nothing about this feels lucky to me. But the truth is, with some years and some reflection, I'm, I'm really glad he had that time in the show. I'm glad we had that time together. It was great. Uh, six weeks after he passes you in the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. It's funny how in your life this seems to happen. Good things uh, adjacent to horrendous things. Yeah. Um, there's a speech you give in June of 2008 at the Tonys. Oh, God. We're going to watch it together, if you don't mind. I don't, uh, I don't know all these people. I assume they're associated with the play. Uh, writing is better than acting. Uh, you get to use your words. You don't have to be there eight times a week, and I can guarantee you that this moment beats the hell out of auditioning for JAG. <laughs> I see some of you audition for that, too. I want to thank the Tony Committee for including uh, our play with the other nominees. Uh, you know you're in pretty stout company when Mark Twain doesn't get a nomination, uh, particularly Jeffrey Richards, Gene Domanian, Steve Traxler, Jerry Frankel. Uh, they, they, they did an amazing thing. They, uh, they decided to produce an American play on Broadway with theater actors. I see some of you are theater actors, too. Uh, I want to thank Steppenwolf Theater. Uh, Martha Levy, David Hawkinson, our board, our staff, uh, Ed Sobel, Erica Daniels. Uh, these people have really helped uh, foster an environment in which this play was made. 
A special thanks to our Chicago theater community. Uh, they are the ones who've made this possible. Thank you very much. Well, we watched that. Is that the end of your review? <laughs> so what I find fascinating about that is for the last hour and 18 minutes, minus a pee break, you have been genuine, honest, decent-seeming for the most part. You seem to strike me as a genuinely good person. Yeah. With some reservations. Maybe more, depending on the day. <laughs> that clip is horseshit. Yeah. That is absolute horseshit. Yeah. And it, it took maybe some... I, I mean, I watched it once to know that that was horseshit. Hmm. So what? what is going on? I was furious. I was absolutely furious. I went backstage and, you know, you go backstage and then do the backstage interview and they... The first question was, how do you feel? And I said, I'm so fucking angry. It was just grief about my father. He had died, he died a couple of months before. I was there with my mom and my brother. We were devastated. The play was still going on. The original cast, minus my father, gave their last performance that day. The replacements were going to come in on Tuesday and start performances. This was a Sunday. It was Father's Day. You know, there had been hellish getting into the suit and getting to the theater. It's, uh, there's always a kind of nightmare involved with that. There was a big celebration going on, and my dad wasn't there, and I was furious about it. Rondi Reed, one supporting actress, featured actress, whatever they call it, and she got up and she mentioned my dad in her speech and me and my brother and my mom just wept openly and as soon as they mentioned my dad they took a camera that was in the aisle and spun it around and shot it right in my face with a with a bright light as I was losing it that year for whatever reason they did the in memoriam segment during the commercial break they didn't actually show it on television they did it in the commercial break my dad was in the in memoriam segment we all lost it. We sat there and we lost it. Me, my mom, my brother. The next category was that. And we won. I was furious. I had written some ideas down on a card in the car on the way to the theater. I learned a lesson about winning awards. <laughs> now, most people would say, well, that's, there's not a lesson you can apply a lot in life, and it's true, but you have to give some thought to what you're going to say, and you'd better spend the time uh, crafting it, writing it. But I wasn't able to speak about my dad. I couldn't talk about my dad. You were furious, but not sad. At the time, I was furious. I was mainly furious that my dad wasn't there. I was furious that there was a celebration going on without my dad. I was furious about what I had gone through. And I, I called my shrink the next day, and I said, I'm so embarrassed over the speech I gave last night. I'm so, I'm so mortified. I can't stop thinking about it. I'm obsessed with this idea that I, I didn't speak about my dad when I could have. And now I got over that. The truth is it's an award speech and it doesn't matter much 
what you say. It's kind of like a memorial service. It actually doesn't matter, right? You think that the memorial service is going to be a thing that kind of wraps things up in a beautiful way, and it doesn't. It doesn't actually do what you hope it will do. And an award speech doesn't do what you hope it will do either. And there was, if I had spoken about my dad, I would be looking at that clip now thinking that somehow reduced him, reduced him to an award speech. And I didn't want to do that. So I look at it now and I, I say, well, that's a reflection of who I was in that specific moment. But uh, yeah, I'm not proud of the speech, but it's an award speech, you know. It doesn't carry a lot of weight for me. It did in the moment. Like I say, I called the shrink. I was like, I'm, I'm bothered by this. And she was, I had a great shrink, and she was really great and really helpful in sort of talking me through it, talking me through why I had been unable to get a hold of some real genuine feeling, genuine emotion about what was going on. If anything, I was a bit more genuine once I got backstage and told everybody how angry I was. Will you kiss your Tony? No, I won't. They ask you that. Tony, when you look it up, you'll see a lot of people kissing their awards. Will you kiss your Tony? No. Next question. You know, I was, it was like that. It was like I was ready to fight somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, I was in a, a very unique circumstance. That was another thing the shrink helped convince me of. It's like, it's not like a lot of people have gone what you've gone through and find yourself in that moment, you know. In fact, maybe nobody has actually gone through quite that before. So I gave myself a break about it. Are you good at that? No, I'm not good at it. I'm better at it than I used to be, but I'm not good at it. What do you think that is? I don't know. Expectations, my own expectations of myself. I'm, I'm not sure. I've been trying to figure it out for myself. I'm, I haven't been able to do it. I, I, I can count on one hand. Well, now we can ask what year you were born. <sighs> 94. So that means you were? 25. I just tw- turned 25. 25 years old. Yeah. Oh, my God. At 25. I mean, uh, there's not to uh, diminish you or patronize you in any way, but no, I have to tell you that at 25 years old, I don't care about uh, accomplishment or anything else. Uh, uh, at 25 years old, talking about this, talking about the ability to give yourself a break, I was so far away from that conceptually at 25. I didn't even understand. I wouldn't have understood the question. Truly. I mean, we're all dealt what we're dealt. Yeah. I don't know if it's for better or worse, but. Well, I, I don't either. You did come out on the other side of this, though. I mean, the play changed your life, without question. Oh, without question. The other plays have changed your life in uh, smaller but significant ways. Yeah. But I don't know if we're sitting here if that play didn't happen. We're almost certainly not. Although I certainly would still want to. I appreciate you saying that, but we're almost (laughs) certainly not. I mean, because there is a cause and effect. There is a, a kind of tumble of some dominoes as a result, right? I don't know that I'm on Broadway in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf if it weren't for August Osage County. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they could have taken that show without any name any name value. Not that I had a lot of name value. And the truth is we didn't do huge box office with Virginia Woolf. But I don't know that we'd get to Broadway if I hadn't written August. And then a lot of the film and TV work I've done as an actor comes about as a result of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? 
the guy who made Homeland, Alex Gonza, saw Virginia Woolf and asked to put me in the show. I had not shot anything on film or TV in seven years at mm-hmm. that point that I did Homeland. And very small stuff even then. So it took a while for me to accept that job, but I made a decision that I wanted to learn more about how it worked, how to act on camera, as opposed to the earlier dream of wanting to be a leading man in film, the right, the adaptation becomes, I want to learn how to do this. I want to see if I can have a better experience with that than I've had previously. And Homeland gave me the opportunity to do that. And that led to a lot of other things. You have a second go at it. A whole second go at it where I don't give a shit about a lot of things I gave a shit about as a younger man. Like what? Well, stupid fame stuff, which probably as a younger actor, you can, uh, you can attach a lot of your self-value to that kind of stuff. And I don't anymore at all. So was that hard to let go of? No, it wasn't. It really wasn't. It was very, it was organic. I, I let go of it organically and naturally. And it, what a relief. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the aspirations in your 30s to make it in this way that you hadn't quite defined, but you had some vague idea of. Yeah. The trajectory of your story, it's almost so smartly plotted that you wrote it. I mean, it's really quite bizarre, you know, the idea that you got to come back and not only probably fulfill some vague dream you had, but fulfill something you didn't even know you wanted, right? I mean, is that... Yeah. What's been happening in the past few years? It seems good. It's all good. It's it's an embarrassment of good. It's allowed for... Don't they usually say riches. I know. You didn't want to. I know. I wanted to swap out good. Okay. You're, you don't like cliches? <laughs> sure, I like them when they serve. But it's beyond riches. I suppose that's why I want to swap it okay. out. Because good has a different kind of value. You know, my relationship with my wife is a healthy, mature relationship. I have a son. He's 19 months old. I would have been a lousy father as a 30-year-old. The kinds of things I cared about, the, my own self-interest, all that stuff. I would have been rotten at it. So I can't even call those riches. No, that's the stuff. That's the real stuff. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I'm working in this business in the way in which I'm working and that I have some choice about what I do, that I get to, I get to pick and choose, that I make money. You know, I, I never had any money. I was doing this by the seat of my pants for so long. I, August Osage County was the first real money I ever made Right. at the age of 43. I don't have a lot of regrets. There wasn't a lot of bitterness about that stuff beforehand because I, I wouldn't have chosen a different profession. I like the profession. I like the experiences I've had in it. I like uh, the people I've met, the travel, all that stuff. And you talk about that marriage of like bad things in my life happening that seem to almost kind of twin with good things. It's almost, I've almost been a little superstitious about that with some of the good things that have happened the last few years. It's like, wow, when's the bad thing coming? You know, (laughs) you can't see this, but Sam is making a kind of uh, take it easy gesture. Yes. (laughs) Yes. You know, 
you uh, say in the past that you um, found yourself relating both to your mother and your father in different ways. Mm. For your mother, you described her as someone who was maybe uh, a little emotionally reserved Mm. inward and that you felt a kinship in that way. Has getting married and having a kid changed some of that? Yeah, I think it has. And her emotional reserve was cleverly disguised. My mother was uh, very uh, gregarious and very... uh, She had a genuine curiosity in other people. Every time mom would come and visit me, she would get out of the cab on the way from the airport and she and the cab driver would hug because they would have gotten to know each other so well over the course of the drive because she had a genuine curiosity about the cab driver, where they had come from, what their story was. She wanted to hear their story. What I knew was that my mom's interest in other people's stories was partly a way to deflect them from taking an interest in her story or her having to talk about herself. So that kind of reserve. I have no idea what that's like. (laughs) You can't see the expression on Sam's face, which is a little bit sarcastic. So, yeah, I think that... uh, I hope I've taken some of the best qualities from my parents, right? I mean, you hope any kid takes some of the best qualities from their parents and not just the worst qualities because we do that too. But uh, I feel more open and engaged in my life, in my everyday life than I ever have prior to this. One quality that you seem to have inherited, and again, I never met your parents, but they had some ability just by the very nature of having you and and your two siblings to weather pain and to keep going. You know, the tragedy that happened with your grandfather, right? your grandmother who was sick in her own ways. Yeah. To endure through that. I mean, based on our conversation here, the apple doesn't far very... Right. They were very... Resilient people. It's true. They were resilient and they they faced a lot of bad things in their lives and dealt with them the best way they could. They were part of a, you know, they made a remarkable leap in their lives, mostly due to education. They, uh, from where they had come from to who they became. And uh, they were remarkable people. They really were. What do you miss about them? Well, I miss so much about him trying to uh, reduce that. Don't reduce it. Well, I miss uh, I miss their humor. They were very funny people. God damn, they were funny. <laughs> and uh, the fact that they're not around for my son is that's a challenge because they would have adored him. He's the first baby born in my family in over fifty years. A very small old family. So. I miss that incredibly. I, you know, my dad never knew my wife. My mom did, but my dad didn't. And that's a shame because he would have been crazy about her. But I miss their, uh, I miss their curiosity. They kept their curiosity into their old age about people, about the world, about each other. They had a genuine searching curiosity about them. That was one of the things that made them great together. I'm sure I'm not the only person to have said this. I'm, I'm glad they weren't alive for Trump because Trump would have killed them. 
He really would have. He would have killed them. And uh, so there's there's a part of me that's relieved they didn't have to go through that. And yet there's also, I'm sad that I don't get to sort of check in with them about what's going on every day. My dad always had such a unique and educated take on things that were going on in the world. He always gave me a different angle on things than I than I was otherwise seeing it with. I, I do miss that. Your father was the first person in his family to graduate from high school. So was my mom. They both had a deep love for the written word. Yeah. You talked earlier and throughout about the great expectations that you have for yourself, created by yourself, but also probably by them. Now that you are where you are, do you feel like you've met those expectations? No. At the same time, I, I don't feel like I have anything to prove. I, the, the chip on my shoulder uh, as a younger man is, I don't know what, it's gone. It's, it's different. So I don't feel like I have anything to prove, which is a great feeling because that can be frustrating when you feel like you have something to prove and you're not proving it or you haven't proved it yet. So I don't feel like that. At the same time, you always hope the work is going to be better deeper, stronger, more truthful, more insightful. That's something I hope I, if I lose the desire to do that, I should stop doing this and just, you know, get on a sitcom or something. Mm. I have a suspicion that that desire is not going anywhere. No. I hope you're right about that. I hope so too. Um, Tracy Letts, it's been such a joy having you. I hope it's been okay uh, doing doing this. Uh, you're really good at this. Thanks very much. Good luck with your movies. Thanks. show special thanks this week to kelly hires and annick moeller if you'd like to see tracy's latest ford verse ferrari it's currently out in theaters around the country he also has a role in greta gerwig's new film little women which will be in theaters december 25th if you'd like to learn more about tracy you can visit our site at www.talkeasypod.com you can find this podcast on spotify itunes stitcher soundcloud wherever you get your podcasts if you'd like to drop us a line, you can email us at talkeasypod at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. And finally, if you would like to consider giving us a donation, uh, you can learn more about that at talkeasypod.com slash donate. We're one of the few weekly, independently operated podcasts. And uh, if you enjoy this show, if the show has meant something to you over the last three years or since you found us over the last few months, uh, we really would appreciate your support. If you can't financially contribute, just sharing the show with a friend, a family member, a stranger, online or an email. I'm not sure how or where you share podcasts, but uh, I know it would mean a whole lot to us, to everyone here at the show. Speaking of, uh, this podcast would not be possible every Sunday without our incredible team. Design is by Ian Chang, graphics by Ian Jones, 
Social media by Nikki Spina. Our editor is Andre Lin. Our music is by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. Our engineer is Tim Moore out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. And the show is produced by Caroline Raybach. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Uh, We have Laura Dern and Gloria Steinem. And uh, I think one or two other people coming up next before we end the year. So stick around. Have a good week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.